ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I think we should start on time because we have to be out of here by uh, 8 o'clock, not later than. Uh, my name is Moshe Makover. I'm a co-director of the uh, uh, Voting Power and Procedures Group at the LSE, and I welcome you on behalf of our group. This is the inaugural public event of our second three-year uh, project funded by the uh, Liverium Trust, to which I uh, uh, forward my thanks for enabling this uh, project and this event to take place. Uh, the uh, project this time is uh, not purely theoretical, as was the first one uh, that terminated a couple of years ago. Um, the, the title of the project is Voting Power in Practice. And uh, I, I did hardly explain the, the uh, practical uh, importance of uh, the whole business of voting. It is not a, by any means a purely theoretical question. Um, and uh, uh, this, what we are doing this, uh, during this project is trying to tie up the, the theory of uh, social choice, decision-making by vote, with the practice. Um, and uh, uh, this act, this, this tie-up, this, this interface is actually encapsulated and exemplified by our two speakers, whom I uh, would like to introduce uh, very briefly. I mean, to introduce them fully would take uh, more than we have time for the whole event. Uh, on our right, on my right, uh, is uh, uh, Professor Ian McLean, who is uh, uh, Professor of Politics at Oxford University and has the, the other quaint title, fairly quaint title, of Official Fellow in Politics at Nuffield College. What this actually means is that he is the, the uh, senior uh, person in social choice in, in this country. Uh, he is uh, the author of a couple of dozen, or co-author and author of, of a couple of dozen books and a couple of hundred uh, papers on uh, social choice and on the history, and I would say archaeology, of social choice because he's unearthed uh, fascinating uh, discoveries from the unknown uh, prehistory. Um, but uh, he's anything but uh, an ivory tower academic. Uh, he's also dirtied his hands in, in actually politics. He's been a member and group leader of Oxford City Council and a member of the Tyne and Weir Metropolitan Council, County Council. Um, and has been a, a, an expert uh, witness and an advisor at various levels of government uh, from local government to uh, parliamentary committees. So uh, he's got uh, uh, more than a foot in the, 
in the practical camp. On, on my left, uh, when I will sit down, is a, a, well, a complimentary, I would say, complimentary uh, 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 figure. Uh, that's uh, Sam Hirsch, who has uh, kindly uh, agreed to come from over the pond. Uh, he is a partner in the Washington, D.C. Uh, law firm of Jenner and Block. Is a, is a, a civil rights lawyer and has, uh, uh, I mean, mainly engaged in, in uh, voting rights uh, litigation on behalf uh, mainly of the, of, the, of, the, of the Democratic Party and has uh, represented cases in more than half of the 50 uh, states of the United States. And uh, uh, notably has been uh, uh, involved in litigation in the recent and very notorious gerrymandering uh, case or alleged gerrymandering case uh, in Texas where the Democratic Party was the aggrieved party. Um, but he's not only a practicing lawyer, he's also lectured at uh, very uh, uh, prestigious law schools, including his alma mater, Harvard University. So uh, I would uh, invite, first of all, our first speaker to give us a talk, uh, mainly centered on the British side of the uh, subject. Moshe, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for giving me this occasion to talk, um, and I hope that the tech guys will be able to tell me where my slides are. Yes. Hmm? Chris? Ah, right? Yeah. Um, would people like the lights to be dimmed? Um, probably a good idea, I think. But not too dim. So that's who I am, and that's what I'll be talking about. And here is the outline of what I want to say, that um, a fair allocation of districts would be one which gives each citizen as near as possible an equal share of voting power. And during the course of the time that I have, I hope to touch on the distinction very dear to the sponsors of tonight's lecture, the distinction between voting weight and voting power. I'm going to talk about the practical difficulties of implementing this mostly about the UK. I'm going to say a little bit about the USA, but uh, my colleague uh, Sam Hirsch is going to say more, uh, much more. I'm going to try to establish that equal population districts are a necessary condition for equal citizen power, but not a sufficient one. And uh, I should say that uh, since I learned that um, um, they don't have one of these little red pointers, uh, I have a prop, which uh, <laughs> I just bought in a joke shop for reasons which are too complicated to go into. So if I need to point, I will use the torch of liberty. Right. Well, here is a manifesto, an, e an egalitarian manifesto from the United Kingdom. It dates, as you see, to 1838, and it was the founding document of what were called the Chartists. And those, those which I don't need to read out, were there six points, as they called them. 
And you see that number five is equal electoral districts. Suppose now that the Chartist Committee was still in being and we had to report on progress. Well, we've got manhood suffrage. Indeed, we, have, we now have womanhood suffrage too. We got the ballot. It was actually the first of their six points to be uh, considered. The abolition of property qualifications and payment of MPs came at the same time in 1911. Equal electoral districts, actually we don't yet have it. And as to annual elections, well, a phrase from John McEnroe would seem to apply. The US situation, about which Sam Hirsch will say much more than I do, uh, e equal districts are in, in, in fact, two senses, as interpreted by the court in two senses, mandated in the Constitution. That's the original US Constitution, as ratified in 1787, and um, the original phrase in, in red uh, reflects one of the compromises that was necessary to have a constitution at all um, in case it's not obvious who, who Indians not taxed are is a question which if anybody asks I hope Sam will answer in the question time but who all other persons are in case it's not obvious is slaves and the deal was that the populous southern states, uh, and Virginia in 1787 was the most populous state, wanted uh, to have as many representatives as their entire population warranted, but of course the slave population had no say in the election of those representatives. After the Civil War, the relevant uh, article of the US Constitution was altered to that, and it's under that article that the work of equal districts is done in the United States. One difference, uh, I'll come on to this in a moment, one difference between the two versions then is, well, the essential difference is that there was a class of persons who were in the population but ineligible to be in the electorate, and therefore whether you drew your equality rule from the population or from the electorate uh, made a big difference to the number of seats you assigned to each state. In modern conditions, basing it on population and basing it on electorate makes no practical difference. We should hesitate, I would say, to call a country a democracy unless it respects the principle of one vote, one value. And a necessary, although as I will show, not a sufficient condition for that, is that all electoral districts should as far as possible contain an equal population or an equal population per representative. This evening, I'm only talking about the single-member electoral districts of the UK and the USA, but perhaps in questions I can discuss how these principles apply to multi-member districts. I am now going to show how the United Kingdom is in violation of one vote, one value, and what might be done about it, as I said a moment ago, I, in the course of that, want to briefly touch on the difference between voting weight and voting power. I'm then going to show that while in the USA formal equality is achieved under the Constitution, substantive equality is not. So, the, in the UK, the principle of equal electoral districts, the principle of equal electoral districts, 
was first conceded in the Third Reform Act of 1884, but not for Ireland, which was all part of the United Kingdom at the time. Famine and emigration had ensured that Ireland's 105 seats in a Parliament of 670, in a House of Commons of 670, were far too many. But both parties, and the 1884 settlement was bipartisan, accepted that to reduce Ireland's representation would be too politically sensitive. Irish politicians would have accused the British of first starving them and then depriving them of seats. The 1884 redistribution shifted seats massively, as the previous one in 1867 had done more timidly, from areas of relatively declining population, uh, which were then rural and southern England, to areas of relatively rising population, then northern and industrial England, and London and suburbs. However, this settlement provided no means of keeping the apportionment of seats up to date uh, as the population shifted around. Letting sleeping dogs lie by not redistricting when population shifts is nice for incumbents, but horrible for citizens. Any redistribution to equalize constituency sizes makes enemies of MPs in the seats to be abolished. The people it benefits have, by definition, too little or perhaps no say at all in the decision. Even in 1867, one of the to-be-abolished MPs had described himself and his fellows as dying swans as he explained why he would vote against Israeli's reform bill. Redistribution, therefore, was referred to a speaker's conference uh, that met during the First World War, by which time the 1884 constituencies were very unequal in population. This device, Speaker's Conference, was designed to ensure that electoral reform had all party support. The problems, both with this one, 1917, and the succeeding one in the Second World War, 1944, were two, I think. One, it lacked professional advice. Politicians have an endearing but misplaced confidence in their own ability to solve apparently straightforward issues of districting. Two, it did not overcome the problem of vested interests. Although all parties in Parliament were represented, all parties, by definition, neither of those parties not yet in Parliament nor the disenfranchised population were at the Speaker's table in 1917. That therefore excluded all women who did not yet have the vote and those men who did not satisfy the then enforced demanding residence qualification. Nevertheless, the 1917 conference did a pretty good job. It recommended the principle that each vote shall as far as possible command an equal share of representation in the House of Commons uh, and set a target population for each seat in Britain, 70,000. Ireland was, as before, too sensitive to handle, and the succeeding uh, representation of the People Act 1918 left it overrepresented. However, most of Ireland seceded in 1921, leaving Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland, from the Government of Ireland Act 1920 until 1979, was deliberately underrepresented in the House of Commons to about two thirds of its population share on the basis that it had a devolved assembly. When it lost its devolved assembly in the 1970s, 
its share of parliamentary seats was raised to its population proportion. Now it's got its devolved assembly back at about the fourth try. Its share of seats, however, has not gone back to two-thirds of its population share. In fact, all three non-English territories are overrepresented in the House of Commons, although all three of them now have devolved assemblies. And I show a graph for Scotland, and in a moment I will for Wales. So here, the, line, the one line is proportionate representation, proportionate to population. So we see that Scotland entered the Union Parliament in 1707 at below proportional representation. It passed to proportional representation appropriately in 1885, when the principle was conceded for the first time. But it is then uh, gently, and in 2001 not so gently, uh, crept up. The downtick for the most recent election is as a consequence of one of the clauses in the Scotland Act, which said that uh, Scotland's over-representation would be reduced to proportionate representation because Scotland has a uh, parliament. But note, proportionate representation actually is still slightly more than proportionate, not the under-representation that applied in Northern Ireland from the 20s to the 70s. Here's the data for Wales. Um, so Wales actually starts over, goes to approximately proportionate in 1885, and then the same story as Scotland, it uh, starts getting overrepresented because the relative populations of both places are declining. And unlike in Scotland, there's no downtick in the uh, most recent um, general election. So... As I'll explain in a moment, um, the rather small redistribution community of academics heavily represented in this room, and if a bomb fell on this room, there would probably only be two or three left, uh, have been complaining for at least 20 years that the rules for redistribution are hopeless. And one uh, way that we were able to make our point was in a report which my predecessor in post, David Butler, and I submitted to the um, Committee on Standards on Public Life, which was reviewing the Electoral Commission. Government has just replied to uh, that report within the last week, and it, is now, it has now discovered a new constitutional principle, unknown until a week ago, which is in red on that slide, the deliberate over-representation of Wales and Northern Ireland in the UK Parliament. Uh, and, as you see, it goes on... On, on over-representation, if, if, uh, if that was going to be altered, this would require consideration of fundamental pillars of the devolution settlement. A cynic may believe that it's a fundamental pillar of the devolution settlement that the Labour Party should retain the power to govern the UK, which depends heavily on its seats in Scotland and in Wales. Could it be argued that the over-representation of Wales and Scotland was deliberate? Well, I did some research on this about 10 years ago when I got, and I believe I was the first outside person to get, the minutes of the 1944, the Second World War Speakers Committee, which set up the present regime. And uh, the key things happened in the eighth and ninth meetings of that committee. That committee, like the 1917 one, had representatives of all parties in the House of Commons, 
Unlike the 1917 one, Scotland and Wales were overrepresented, proportionate to population, on the committee. And, of course, the Scots and the Welsh were well aware that their relative population had declined, that they were therefore at risk of losing seats. So, in the eighth meeting, you get that statement, minuted. It would be very desirable to state from the outset quite clearly that the number of Scottish and Welsh seats would not be diminished. The absence of such a feeling, assurance, give rise to a good deal of political feeling would lend support to separatist movements in both countries. Now, you may ask, where were the Scottish and Welsh nationalists in 1944? The answer is nowhere, but it's clear that the political parties, the politicians in Scotland, used them as bogeymen in order to guarantee their floor level of representation. At the next meeting of the committee... Uh, somebody said, hey, if you have equal-sized constituencies and a floor for Scotland and Wales, and if Scottish and Welsh population continues to decline, you've got a contradiction. Quite clearly, I don't need to spell out to this audience, you do have a contradiction between those two rules. Uh, and this is the comforting minute written by the Secretary of the Committee. England's position would be adequately covered by the formula for calculating the quota, the conference agreed that it was unnecessary to amend the rules to meet the line of argument that I've just mentioned. And I think Garrison Keeler has the best comment on that situation, which was then embodied in the legislation which we still have. So, um, as in Lake Wobegon, where all the children are above average, so in the parliamentary districting rules for the United Kingdom, on average, all constituencies in England must be above average. I'm now going to say something about uh, the second source of inequality in UK districts, and this is uh, incumbent protection and party protection. Between them, those two principles have the effect of slowing down the process of redistricting to an unconscionably slow uh, pace, but their effects in detail are slightly different. Um, first, let me talk about the slow pace. Uh, the current redistricting, which is currently in progress, for England depends on relative electorates in the year 2000, 2000, already seven years ago, for constituencies which are not yet in force. They will come into force at the general election, which we're expecting in 2009 or 2010, and will be in force for probably at least one more general election after that. So by the time they in turn are superseded by the next redistricting, uh, the uh, districting will be 15 years old, and therefore there will be extreme inequality of relevant, uh, relative electorates. People who live in growing parts of the country are systematically underrepresented, those who live in declining parts, relatively declining, are systematically overrepresented. This imparts political as well as spatial bias. Declining parts of the country are poor and disproportionately likely to vote Labour if they vote at all. Growing parts of the country have the opposite characteristics. One would expect, therefore, that Conservative governments would hurry up redistributions and Labour governments would slow them down, and that both of these have in fact happened. A Labour government slowed down a redistribution in 1969 by a parliamentary trick. A Conservative government passed 
primary legislation in 1992 to speed it up, in both cases for utterly naked partisan advantage. I think the moral of this is that redistricting should be put beyond the sticky hands of politicians to deal with. But even the Conservatives, whose vested interest is in speed, failed to speed up the process to the point that every other democracy with single-member districts, with the sole exception of India, can manage. India is worse than the UK, but every other single-member district regime is better. Relative populations are known with, at most, only a few months' delay. Why, then, does UK districting lag by anything between 9 and 15 years? I would say because of incumbent protection as opposed to party protection. It's just that the existing legislators rather like the set of constituencies which they have because they are the MPs for them. Now, when it comes to a redistricting, um, the fact that incumbent protection is not the same as party protection uh, comes into play, as it also does in the US. Incumbent protection, of course, means minimum change. Party protection means, in the jargon, packing and cracking. Uh, In other words, if a party can control a districting, and I expect Sam will have much more to say about this, then it wants to uh, either pack the opposition voters into seats which are very safe for them and therefore uh, out of of harm's way from the point of view of the party which is doing the redistricting, or to crack them into... Uh, groups which are just less than a majority in each district. Now, if all sides did that equally, the result would be neutral, and therefore perhaps democratic theorists would have not very much to worry about. Uh, It happens that these skills have not been entirely equal in the British system, and I am a veteran of the last two redistrictings. To give an example of incumbent protection and party protection, I'll speak of West Yorkshire, Um, and the classic nightmare faced by the current Secretary of State for School Education, Ed Balls MP, and the current current Housing Minister, Yvette Cooper MP. They sit for adjacent seats in West Yorkshire, and they're also husband and wife. With a fine sense of humour, the Boundary Commission for uh, England proposed to abolish Mr Balls' constituency and pass a chunk of it to his wife. This gave rise to the longest inquiry that I know of in the history of parliamentary inquiries. I have an interest to declare as I was an expert witness, although not for the Balls-Cooper household. Under equal electorate rules, um, the Boundary Commission ought to have given West Yorkshire 23 seats. Its exact entitlement was to 22.49. How that should round up to 23, I'll come to in a moment, but it should. Uh, It, however, assigned 22 seats. Mr. Balls lost his seat, and I think the MP for a neighbouring seat has since been rewarded with an ambassadorship or something very tempting. So Mr. Balls will stay in Parliament, but for a different seat. In that case, Ed Balls' interest coincided with his party. It was a declining part of the country, and the party had a common interest in uh, resisting the reduction of seats. In other cases, the interest of incumbents may vary from the interest of the parties. An MP for a safe seat wants to keep his seat safe. The party wants to 
distribute the electorate as efficiently as possible by having a lot of seats which are just marginal in its favour. And these principles have been known for a long time. Elbridge Gerry was governor of Massachusetts in 1812, and that's what he did. Many of you may have seen this famous cartoon, but uh, a cartoonist in Boston in 1812 when he saw the pattern of districts that Governor Jerry was proposed, said, it's like a salamander, drew that, and that's how we have the word gerrymander. So that is Elbridge Jerry's uh, packing and cracking of part of the state of Massachusetts in 1812. I'll skip now to the principle of one vote, one value. Recall that in 1917, the Speaker's Conference recommended each vote shall, as far as possible, command an equal share of representation in the Commons. The current Act, uh, which is the product, as I say, of the second Speaker's Conference, 1944, says the electorate of any constituency shall be as near the electoral quota, where electoral quota is simply electorate of the entire country divided by the existing number of constituencies, as practicable. They are the same, are they not? Well... Actually, they're not. Um, in the technical appendix to this lecture, which I'm not going to attempt to deliver today, but which should appear uh, online in a few weeks, uh, I will do the proof because the proof is not difficult. Nevertheless, it's not something that I'm comfortable with uh, standing here and talking to a general audience. I simply assert that it is the case that with the rule written as it now is in the legislation that as near as possible each, each constituency will be the same size, that entails and is entailed by splitting entitlements at not at a half but at the harmonic mean, the formula for which is up there, which is always below a half, and it's further below a half the smaller the unit. To make, whereas if you had gone with the 1917 formula saying each citizen should as far as possible have an equal share of an MP, you would have splitting at the arithmetic mean, which seems intuitively right. So, if the rule says, give each elector an equal share of, the, of an MP, that entails and is entailed by one unique rule, which is split entitlements at the arithmetic mean. The Isle of Wight, which is the smallest UK unit, has a precise entitlement of 1.45 uh, seats. Uh, you can't easily divide the Isle of Wight and make a constituency which is part island, part mainland. So what do you do? Well, under that rule, you give it one seat. Under the rule which is actually in the on the statute book, make each constituency equal, that entails and is entailed by splitting entitlements at the harmonic mean. And the Isle of Wight, with about 1.45 standard constituencies, should be given two. Uh, in rough numbers, it's possibly easier to think of it in the, in the numbers. Standard constituency is about 70,000 electorates. The Isle of Wight has 100,000. If you give it two seats, they're 50,000 each, 20,000 away from the target. If you give it one seat, it's 100,000 and it's 30,000 away from target. So, the rule says give the Isle of Wight two seats. The Boundary Commission, however, has always given it one so much for obeying the rules. Here is a graph showing the cumulative effect of these various distortions 
um, and the zero line near the bottom is uh, equal, um, equal size constituencies. Um, below zero, sorry, equal partisan effect, I should have said. Below zero means a bias to the Conservatives. Above zero means a bias to Labour. Labour always loses when there is a review, which is what you would expect, because it to some extent adjusts for population shifts. However, it's since the 1964 general election, the partisan bias has always favoured Labour because of the effect of uh, the delays in population shift. However, the huge partisan bias in the system in favour of Labour is not all due to these mechanical effects. And I said I would say something about voting weight and voting power, and although I'm running out of time, I want to do that for in a moment. Uh, the authors of the decomposition of bias have calculated that there are six components and an interaction effect, so seven in total. And the largest single one is differential abstention. Why does Labour win far more seats on a given vote share than the Conservatives? In each case, plus means a bias in favour of Labour, minus in favour of the Conservatives. Lar very large source of bias from differential abstentions, which means, which has an effect that the effect that very safe Labour seats, or what would be very safe Labour seats, are safer than very safe Conservative seats. Voters are rational. They know it won't make any difference, and therefore they don't turn out. Turnout is very low, and therefore Labour wins more seats in total with fewer votes than do the Conservatives. That's an illustration of the fact that voting weight, even if we had equal population districts, we'd still have this effect, is not the same as voting power. Those in very safe seats have, as near as makes no difference, zero voting power. I will be very brief because I mustn't trench on Sam's time, um, but there are two issues in the US. There's the apportionment issue, which is between states, and there's districting within states. As we're about to hear, formal equality is ensured in the US by the Constitution and the courts. The reality is very different, and I will tell one story about incumbent protection and then stop. In the Old South, the Justice Department, the US Federal Justice Department, is deeply suspicious of state politicians and state legislatures. It believes, not without uh, justification, that they are white racists determined to oppress their black population. There is therefore a power for the Justice Department to intervene if a state legislature draws districts for the US Congress and the Justice Department thinks it doesn't like them. And in a number of southern states this has taken place and the case that a student of mine has studied was Georgia after the 1990 population census. State legislature produced a districting, the Justice Department didn't like it, Justice Department rode like freedom riders into the state of Georgia and said, you must make sure you have majority-minority districts, and that is to protect the existing African-American incumbents in the state of Georgia. And how? Uh, they, I haven't got a map, but they produced some districts of very extraordinary shapes. We may see some shaped districts in the next talk. Well, what did this do? It did two things. One, it made those districts very safe for African-American incumbents. Two, it handed the state to the Republican Party, since uh, it, was, it was the exact opposite of what a rational state Democrat 
if, if such person had been in charge of the state districting would have done, they would have spread the Democratic voters, African-American voters notoriously being the most heavily pro-Democratic group in the entire population. They would have put them into as many districts as they had a hope of winning. Uh, and therefore, there was a bizarre coalition in, involving three parties, African-American incumbents, the Federal Department of Justice, and the state Republican Party to ensure that formal equality did not lead to real equality. Uh, so although that's back to the UK, although US achieves a much better result than that, and I won't pause over that table because it will be available in a few weeks' time, uh, that it merely shows that even immediately after a redistribution, uh, UK doesn't have very equal constituencies. Nevertheless, I end on two notes. That's one of them, and that's the other. Thank you very much. We'll have questions later, but I now call on Sam Hirsch uh, to give our second talk of the evening. Thank you. Uh, thanks to LSE, to Professors McOver and uh, Farah and the entire Voting Power and Procedures team for inviting me to come and uh, be on the same stage with Professor McLean. Uh, and thanks to Professor McLean for tolerating an enumerate American lawyer uh, like myself. Uh, the the, um, the uh, idea of inviting an American election law litigator uh, to lecture on how to draw fair districts uh, is uh, a bit ironic, sort of like asking uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld to lecture on how to manage a foreign occupation. But uh, uh, I do have some good news from the states, and I'd like to mix it in with, with, unfortunately, way too much bad news. So first I'm going to address five problems that are perceived to be and mostly are real problems with American redistricting. I'm going to give five specific examples from different states and then talk about a couple of solutions at the end. The first problem that a lot of people talk about is that the redistricting process in the United States is too litigious. I make a good chunk of my living off redistricting litigation, so I'm really the wrong person to answer that one. But I would say that there's basically two ways that things can become too litigious. One is if the standards for challenging the status quo are too plaintiff-friendly and too difficult on the defendants. Uh, I really don't think that's true, uh, as you'll see, because I think there are so many problems that need to be addressed, and some of them courts could be addressing uh, more actively than they are. The other problem is sometimes uh, things get too litigious because the legal standards applicable to a given set of facts are too unclear and murky, and I do think that's a problem here, and then more on that later as well. A second problem often referred to is uh, the idea that districts uh, are way too bizarrely misshapen. Uh, the good news here is this is actually uh, now improving substantially in the United States. The, the heyday of truly bizarrely misshapen districts in the U.S. was in the early 90s. And after the 2000 census, when districts were redrawn, we saw a substantial improvement, in large part because the U.S. Supreme Court came up with a doctrine for clamping down on the most bizarrely shaped districts in 1993 and refined over the course of the 1990s. The more important point about compactness, however, is I don't think it really matters all that much at the end of the day. First of all, no one really knows what the district they live in looks like on a map. Uh, and the people who really need to know it, the, the candidates who campaign, 
the, the pollsters who take public opinion polls, the journalists who interview voters, they usually can find their targets. And uh, what really matters about redistricting is how it translates public opinion and public sentiment into actual elected legislators and eventually into public policy. Uh, compactness also doesn't matter that much because with modern technologies and modern databases, it's possible to generate a rip-roaring gerrymander uh, that looks pretty on a map. So it's not a very good diagnostic tool, and we'll talk about that more later as well. The third of the five complaints you hear a lot about redistricting in the states is that it generates too little racial and language minority representation. Uh, there is definitely some truth to this, but perhaps less than some people think. For example, if we look at the African-American population, which is 13% of the U.S. population, um, how does it uh, fair in both U.S. Senate elections, which are statewide and therefore don't involve redistricting or gerrymandering at all, and U.S. House elections, which are district by district. Well, we have a U.S. Senate that is 1% African American. We have a U.S. House that is 9% African American. Now, that's partly just due to the nature of territorial single-member districts, but it's also partly due to the fact that we have uh, in the courts a fairly aggressive approach to enforcing the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is one of the great civil rights statutes uh, of American history. And in particular, uh, the Voting Rights Act has been interpreted basically to look past the question of whether there is in line drawing discriminatory, racially discriminatory animus, discriminatory intent or purpose, and just focus on the effects and to focus on the issue that Professor McLean talked about. Is there packing and cracking? In other words, is there a cramming of minority voters at very high levels of concentration into a tiny number of districts to disempower them in the neighboring districts. That's packing. Or is there cracking, where you sprinkle the minority population so broadly among, among many districts that they and their allies are an ineffective minority in every one of them? Those are basically illegal procedures in most instances in the U.S. due to the Voting Rights Act and the way the courts have interpreted it. And I think the reason that we see 9% of Congress being African-American, the House being African-American today, um, while 1% of the Senate is, has a lot to do with the fact that that's been very effective in counteracting racially polarized voting, which is a very widespread and deep phenomenon in the U.S. The fourth issue you hear a lot about is that redistricting generates too few competitive elections and too little responsiveness in our political system. That, in my view, is a genuine and huge problem. Uh, as you know, we have a decennial process where the census is taken in the year ending at zero, Usually districts are redrawn in the year ending in one, and then the first elections are held under them in the year ending in two. So we had a 1990 census, a 91 redrawing, a 92 election, same with 2000, 2001, and 2002. And what you typically see is in the first election after a redistricting, there are a lot more incumbents who retire. There's a lot more who are defeated if they don't retire. Uh, and you get a lot of fresh blood in, in the House of uh, Representatives and in state legislatures because members are having to take on new constituents and, and, and new challenges, and sometimes they're just not up to the task. What we saw in the 2001 redistricting and the 2002 elections, however, was the exact opposite. The number of incumbents retiring and being defeated went down rather than up. Turnover went down rather than up. In fact, out of 435 districts, only four challengers in the entire United States won against incumbents in the November 2002 election, which shows how well the incumbents were protected by the redrawing of districts. In California, where there were 50 challengers, none of them even reached the 40% mark, much less the 50% mark. There was a California consultant 
who uh, held up the California map, feeling very proud about his work on it, and told a reporter, this is a quote, this new plan basically does away with the need for elections. <laughs> so that, that means it's gone too far. We also saw out of 435 districts, 80 of them, uh, one of the major parties didn't even bother to contest. And this is not just a phenomenon that is widespread across all American elections. It is peculiar to single-member districted elections. Again, the, the Senate provides a useful comparison because we elect our senators statewide and governors uh, likewise are elected statewide. And we saw in, in 2002 about half the senators and half the governors had races with a winning margin of 10 percentage points or less, so one out of two. In the U.S. House, we have districts. It was one out of 12. Dramatic difference. The, the fifth and final problem that you hear a lot about is that redistricting generates too much partisan bias, that it unfairly will favor one political party over the other. And I, I speak often here about two parties because we obviously far, far more than, than you have a fundamentally two-party system where there's a very tiny fraction of the vote that goes to any third party or independent candidates. And as, as Professor McLean mentioned, when one party controls the governorship and both state legislative chambers in an American state, they have the potential to generate enormous amounts of bias in their favor and against their opposing party, again, through these tools of packing and cracking. It's not atypical in a very competitive state where the electorate is almost perfectly evenly divided, but there is one party control of the redistricting process for whatever reason to generate a plan that has no more than a third of the districts available to the out party and two-thirds of the districts will be controlled by the in-party, the, the party controlling the, uh, the pen, so to speak. It used to be thought that uh, this could only happen uh, at great expense to other redistricting uh, criteria. For example, it was thought if you really generate a great partisan gerrymander, the districts will be really ugly. And that is absolutely not true today, and I'll give an example of that momentarily. So the trade-off allegedly between partisanship and, comp and compactness doesn't really uh, exist except at the extreme margins today. The other thing is it used to be thought that uh, if you really tried to hammer the opposing party, you would end up spreading your vote thin enough that your own districts would actually become competitive and uh, potentially could be taken over, as in the Georgia example that, that Professor McLean spoke of. But again, based on really good uh, software and more importantly, really good databases about political voting behavior, uh, that trade-off is no longer so true today either, as I'll give some examples. We had a very odd circumstance in 2001 in that in the four largest what we call purple states, red being Republican, excuse me, blue being Democratic, purple being highly competitive, these are Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. Uh, we happened to have in all four states in 2001 a Republican governor, Republican state senate, and Republican state house. So we had a real experiment in how bad can it get, and it got pretty bad. And the redistricting plans that came out of those four states in the 2002 elections uh, generated a two-thirds Republican uh, House delegation for the four states, 51 Republicans, 26 Democrats. And that was not uh, spreading them so thin as to create a problem in 2006 when we had a huge nationwide pro-democratic wave in reaction to the failures of the Bush administration. What we saw there is if you look at the U.S. Senate races in those four states, Republican uh, uh, popular support was down around 41 percent. It was clearly the minority party in all four states last year in 2006. Yet they still hung on to 57 percent of the House seats because the partisan gerrymander in those four states was so effective. So what you see here is a good, I don't mean that in a normative sense, but an effective partisan gerrymander can invert 
a popular minority and turn them into a governing majority. And in fact, for much of the Bush years, the Republican advantage in the House has been wholly or nearly wholly attributable to the partisan bias in these four states as well as a handful of others. So now we can see why our former Republican Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, said, and this is about as succinct as it gets, quote, redistricting is everything. Let's get some examples. I'm going to talk about five states. The first is Michigan, where in federal elections uh, we have a very competitive state, slightly Democratic-leaning. But again, it was one of those states that had Republican uh, state uh, uh, political control in 2001. They drew beautiful districts. They weren't ugly at all. If I could project them up here behind me, you'd say they're really quite obviously not gerrymanders. But in fact, what they had done is they drew five districts that were absolutely packed with Democratic voters, and they contained, in addition to many, many uh, excessive Democratic voters, they contained eight Democratic incumbents setting up three inter-Democratic primaries where incumbent had to run against incumbent. Then in the other 10 districts of the state, they spread the Republican vote out quite evenly. Um, They gave each of the Republican incumbents a very comfortable district without any pairings. And they also created two new open seats, one for the state's chief elections officer, another for a member of the state Senate redistricting committee. By coincidence, both were Republicans, of course. Uh, Perhaps more disturbing than the uh, output, however, was the process that led to it, which I unfortunately had to live through personally. For months and months, we heard that there was a great Republican gerrymander afoot in Michigan, but no one had seen it, at least no one in the public, no one in the press. It was put out at the very last moment. It was subjected to one House committee hearing at 11 o'clock at night, and then it was passed on a perfect party line vote that night at 2.35 in the morning uh, with not a single Republican or Democratic dissenter in the House. And the complete lack of deliberation over this plan actually resulted in two substantive errors. One district was non-contiguous. It had two separate pieces. Another bigger problem was they left 4,578 people out of the map entirely. So those people had no one to vote for for Congress. And this was a big goof. So what were they going to do? The worst thing is they, they planned to do all this on the very last day of the session before they all went off to summer recess. And uh, uh, therefore, there was no easy way to fix it. So they all left town before they realized they'd left 4,578 people out of their map. And then they were too embarrassed to send it on to the governor at that point. So they either had to bring it back to the next session of the legislature in the fall, which would have subjected it to the kind of uh, searching evaluation that they were trying to avoid in the first place by rushing it. Or they could do something more devious and just try to fix it by having the secretary of the Senate and administrative officer fix the bill, insert some language, give it to the governor, sign it, and hope it didn't get struck down. And even that they didn't want to do at a time when it might be criticized in the press more than they were already getting hammered in the press up in Michigan for this. So they waited until a good day when there was something really busy happening in the news so they could do it uh, without getting much press attention. And, and, and if it just so happens in Michigan, they record the precise time when the governor receives a bill and the precise, precise time when he signs it. Governor John Engler, the Republican governor of Michigan, signed this bill at 4.54 p.m. on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, eight hours after the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were destroyed. Uh, Needless to say, this did not generate much press the next morning. Uh, It did, however, do its job. Michigan had, in the 2002 elections, a Republican supermajority, even though the majority of the people are Democratic, not a single seat change in 2004, and not a single seat change in 2006, even when we had a huge Democratic tidal wave. This was a very effective gerrymander. And it was, remember, 
full of pretty districts. The Supreme Court did not take this case, although two justices said they were interested in it. The other seven were not. We then turned to Pennsylvania, which is a case that we did get the Supreme Court to take. I think they took it probably because, unlike Michigan, the districts were really ugly. One was known as the supine seahorse. One was called the upside-down Chinese dragon. They all got these animal names, but none of them looked like a rectangle or, or, or any other regular form, I can guarantee you. It also turned out to be what our friend uh, uh, Bernie Groffman, a professor in the U.S., calls a dummy mander, because come 2006, when Democrats got more popular, it actually uh, wasn't quite a strong enough gerrymander, and the Democrats actually did take over a majority of the House delegation there. But that was all after the court uh, ruled on the case. We asked the court to say that if a plan is so biased that even a narrow majority of the electorate, uh, even if the opposing party captures a narrow majority of the electorate, 50, 51, 52 percent, it's virtually impossible to carry half or more of the seats, that that should be a standard that is so severe, so excessive, that the court would strike it down. And uh, uh, we lost that, that, that fight. Uh, All nine justices, interestingly, said that the excessive use of partisanship and redistricting was unconstitutional. Uh, Four said it should be struck down. Four said it should not be a matter within the power of the courts to deal with. And one, Justice Kennedy kind of waffled in the middle, and he said, well, the problem here is you have to figure out how much partisan effect is too much partisan effect, and I don't have a test for drawing the line, so I'm going to uphold this map and let it be. Then we got into a new phenomenon, which is going to be the story of the next three states I talk about. Briefly, Colorado in 2003, for the first time had unified, first time in many years, had unified Republican control. They didn't have it in 2001 when they first uh, could have redrawn the map, but they got it through the 2002 elections. They came back to the legislature in 2003, and for the first time in modern American history, they redrew a map in the middle of the decade, uh, seizing advantage of the fact that they now had unified Republican control of the governorship in both state legislative chambers. The Republican state Senate president uh, in what I think is just one of the clearest lines ever written about, about this uh, phenomenon, told a reporter, quote, we didn't have to play nicey-nicey. So they didn't play nicey-nicey. I don't know what that means, but I, I, I like it. Uh, this plan was struck down by a state Supreme Court on state constitutional grounds. Um, and uh, uh, then we saw, though, this phenomenon uh, continuing in other states, most notably in Texas, which was the second state in modern American history to do a mid-decade redistricting. There, in 2001, when the plan should have been drawn, there was split control between Democrats and Republicans in the legislature. The Republican governor refused repeatedly to call a special session to do a redistricting. The federal court ended up drawing a map that had seven competitive districts, 14 Republican districts, 11 Democratic-leaning districts. It was a a reasonably fair map. We had better candidates in the 2002 election and took six of the seven competitive uh, uh, districts. But the Republicans at the state level were taking over the Texas House, giving Republicans in Texas unilateral control of the government for the first time ever. Um, And it turned out later that that was because uh, the state, the uh, U.S. majority leader, Tom DeLay, had raised a lot of illegal money in order to uh, boost state legislative candidates for the Republican Party, and he's, of course, under indictment for that now. But the newly Republican, uh, the new Republican majority came back to Austin and made repeated attempts to pass a uh, uh, gerrymander uh, in Texas, it takes a two-thirds majority to have a quorum. So although the Democrats didn't control the majority, they could prevent a quorum uh, from legislating. And they walked out of the state house. Uh, the Republicans then tried to get them arrested and dragged back to the state capitol to vote on, against the gerrymander because they needed the quorum. 
the Democrats got out in the middle of the night, loaded up in school buses, and drove over the state line out of the jurisdiction of the police to Ardmore, Oklahoma, where they all checked into the Holiday Inn, which is one unpleasant place, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, thereby they avoided arrest. So then Tom DeLay, our U.S. Majority Leader, uh, called the Department of Homeland Security, our anti-terrorist uh, department, and said, can we track all the local planes to try to figure out where these guys flew to, never thinking they would actually, you know, being Democrats, take a school bus. Uh, and uh, eventually the Department of Transportation and Homeland Security turned him down. But, but uh, uh, this stymied the Republicans for a while. There was a similar walkout later of the Democratic senators who went to New Mexico, a much better place than Ardmore, Oklahoma. They had better taste. Uh, the, de- the Democrats took a real beating on this, however, in that the Republicans who were left behind in Austin started doing all sorts of things. They took away all sorts of staff privileges, Everything as petty as parking privileges up to things as sort of uh, nasty as there's a tradition that you can, if one of your constituents dies, particularly if he or she was a veteran, uh, you can get a a flag that flew over the Capitol and give it to the family. They will sometimes drape the coffin with it at at their funeral, and they refuse to give any of the flags out to any of the Democrats, stuff like that. It's pretty cheesy. The, the map at the end of the day moved 8 million Texans into new districts. It targeted seven Democratic members of Congress. And they, they got six of them in the very first election. And in the very first election with this map, there was only one close contest out of 32. So we brought a legal challenge. Unlike Michigan and Pennsylvania, where our challenges said, at the time when they had to be redistricting, those states uh, put too much emphasis on party, among all the other things they were doing, including equalizing the populations according to the new census data. Texas wasn't like that because the map already in existence was perfectly lawful. The the entire project in Texas was unnecessary and was purely partisan, uh, not just in effects, but purely partisan in its intent and in its motive. And we lost that five to four in the U.S. Supreme Court as well. They said that it was okay because the map being replaced was drawn by a court and redistricting maps should be drawn by legislatures. And they also thought that the old map was a little pro-democratic, which is not actually true, but uh, their argument was you could replace a pro-democratic map with a pro-republican map, and I think that is uh, referred to in kindergarten as two wrongs make a right. But that that was the theory. Uh, They did, however, strike down part of the map on the grounds it was unfair to Latinos under the Voting Rights Act, and some commentators say that actually was a way of ameliorating some of the partisan impact of the delay gerrymander. My last example comes from Georgia. Uh, not the decade that uh, Professor McLean spoke of, but this decade. And this is perhaps the most pernicious form of this mid-decade uh, redistricting phenomenon. This does not involve Congress. This involves the state Senate. It does not involve the entire state. It involves one little patch, three state Senate districts. Uh, one of them was a competitive district centered on the city of Athens, which is where the University of Georgia is located. And that, by Georgia standards, is a liberal bastion. Uh, So it created, because it's a very liberal area, the entire district was quite competitive. Um, And in 2004, a Republican candidate who won there very narrowly by a couple of percentage points. In 2005, he was already bored with his job, decided he wanted to run for a statewide office. So there was going to be a vacancy. And Jane Kidd, who was a state rep, state representative, who had a smaller district inside the Senate district, decided she would seek a promotion to the state Senate. So she immediately announced that she was going to run for this open Senate seat in this very competitive district. And then the main Republican candidate who was going to run against her was the same guy that she had beaten for her own seat previously. So it was going to be a rematch. It was going to be a tight race. Uh, She had a good chance of winning it. Uh, This guy who was running against her, however, was also the brother-in-law of the retiring state senator who was trying to run for statewide office. So it was a little incestuous. 
So what did Georgia do for, the, for this fellow and his brother-in-law? They redrew these districts, and they cut Athens right down the middle. They cut the University of Georgia campus right down the middle. And they basically shoved her part, where she lived and her best supporters lived, into another district that had very uh, conservative Republican base out in the rural areas. And they basically made it impossible for her to win. The line, surprisingly, left, and not surprisingly, left the brother-in-law on the other side. And he could then easily win uh, after uh, his uh, most liberal constituents and his challenger had been removed from the district removed from the district physically. That, uh, we would say in Colorado, is not playing nicey-nicey. Uh, this, I think, is the paradigm of a very dangerous trend, however. If redistricting ceases to be a decennial function, starts to be a biennial one, uh, a piece of a campaign, a way to uh, uh, ruin your competition, not through uh, better uh, uh, policy statements, not through better speeches, not through uh, better door knocking or phone banking or television or radio ads, uh, but rather just by changing the district lines. That is very dangerous, and it's not only dangerous in states like Georgia and Texas and Colorado where one party controls. It's also dangerous in states with split control because you could imagine you would fix one competitive district in one corner of the state to make it clearly Republican and then trade that off by fixing another competitive district elsewhere in the state to make it clearly Democratic. So you could get bipartisan deals along these lines. And what would happen is the very small number of competitive districts we already have would shrink even further. So let me turn briefly, and I don't want to run too far over length, to the question of what we should do to fix all this. Clearly, we've got some problems that need fixing. Uh, I see two main avenues of reform one being judicial review and the other being state constitutional amendment. Uh, courts, as Professor McLean explained, have been pretty effective, actually, in ensuring one person, one vote, and e at least in equalizing, let me phrase that more carefully, at least in equalizing the district populations uh, within each state. Uh, they've also been fairly effective, as I pointed out, under the Voting Rights Act in averting minority vote dilution. I think they could be equally uh, effective, if they wanted to be, in averting partisan vote dilution because they would have to use the same basic techniques, which is uh, uh, outlawing uh, packing and cracking. Um, the court now has looked at this three times in the last 20 years, the, the U.S. Supreme Court. They rejected our focus on thwarting majority will in the effects of a district, which we raised in the Pennsylvania case. They rejected our, our focus on uh, 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 having purely partisan uh, motivation in the Texas case. So at this point, this issue of partisan gerrymandering is justiciable by the uh, federal courts, but it has never yet been justiced. Uh, so we really don't know uh, what the test is. All this could change if one seat on the Supreme Court changes, uh, particularly after the next presidential election. Um, but in the meantime, the real danger is that when courts see a terrible gerrymander, rather than being up front and validating it for what it is, they look for other things. I already mentioned the fact that there was a Latino issue that actually resulted in the invalidation of part of the Texas map. Uh, but, but here's a weirder example by far, because that was a very legitimate voting rights claim. I actually got the Pennsylvania map initially struck down uh, because the biggest district had 646,380 people in it, and the smallest district had 646,361 people in it. So there was a 19-person deviation. It was a ridiculous partisan gerrymander, but they struck it down not as a partisan gerrymander, but rather as a one-person, one-vote violation, which is pretty bizarre. Uh, we were happy with the result, but then they came back, they fixed the deviation from 19 people down to one person, and then we had no claim left. 
and then it picks up where I, where I uh, described it earlier. So you get this uh, problem where uh, uh, partisan claims are reconfigured to be one-person, one-vote claims, or worse yet, race-based claims, and you racialize the whole discussion of this issue rather than being upfront in dealing with partisanship. The problem of competitiveness, however, is much harder for courts because when you ask what is the right answer on partisan bias, the answer is to minimize it, to treat the two parties symmetrically, and that flows naturally from the equal protection clause of our Constitution, which requires or guarantees the equal protection of the laws. But when it comes to competitiveness, what's the right amount? You can have too much. You can have too little. Uh, if you have a, a, a state like Ohio that's competitive and has 18 districts and nine are locked down for Democrats and nine are locked down for Republicans, then no reasonable shift in public opinion will matter. That's no good. On the other hand, if you make all of the microcosms of the state, you may oscillate between 18-0 Republican delegations and 18-0 Democratic delegations. The minority voice will go unheard in the halls of Congress. There'll be no stability, and you'll lose any experience you have among your legislators. So the ideal is somewhere in the middle, but the Constitution tells us nothing about where. So finally, if courts can't get the job done to fix this competitiveness problem, and they're not willing at this point to get it done to fix the... Uh, um, the uh, partisan bias problem. Let's think about institutional design and changing the way we write our uh, the way our state constitutions require the process to be done. One focus is who does it. You can shift power from the state legislatures to independent or nonpartisan or bipartisan commissions. I think that's a good idea, but I don't think it's as important as how they do it. No matter who's doing it, I think we need to subject redistrictors to very tough, specific criteria, and. Um, there are two different approaches to this. Some would say blindfold, give, it, give the job to commissioners and blindfold them. Don't give them information about electoral data. Don't tell them where the incumbents live. Don't tell them where registered Democrats and registered voters, uh, re registered Republicans live. Tell them that they are prohibited from looking at that data and that they've got to draw pretty districts. Uh, and let's hope it all works out. I think that is a terrible idea for five reasons. One, you can end up with a huge partisan bias inadvertently. We didn't solve racial vote dilution by ignoring race. We're not going to solve partisan vote dilution by uh, uh, avoiding any consideration of partisan data. Two, how do you keep these commissioners ignorant? Uh, how do you bar this information from seeping into their brains? Three, what if they get it anyway? Uh, an Arizona commission tried this, and a guy stood up at a public hearing and started reading into the record the addresses of all the incumbents, and they had to drag him out with the police. Four, if the commissioners get infected and learn about some political data, then what? What do you do? You're stuck. And then fifth, I actually think it prevents reforms from getting enacted because everyone's too scared that pretty districts will hurt them. Whereas if you had a redistricting reform that made minimizing partisan bias a central consideration and described in detail what that means and how it should be operationalized, then neither political party would have to fear that it would get gutted through inadvertence or, or through uh, some sort of trickier uh, uh, shenanigans. And that basically is what the New Jersey system has been since 1966 for state legislative districting. And it's been quite successful, and I think that we should think hard about uh, broadening that out uh, so that not only can the members of the commission participate in the process, but the members of the public can. They can submit maps through the Internet, have them judge based on some clear-cut formula for determining partisan bias or, for that matter, competitiveness or whatever the criteria are that you care about, and forcing basically a, a kind of competition, which I'm happy to uh, describe in more detail in, in the question and answer session, if you like. 
the central point here is I think the problems of gerrymandering are not entirely insoluble. I think that politics always will be and probably should be at the center of this project. But just as the gerrymanders have figured out how to harness the power of actual electoral data for their benefit, now we reformers must figure out how to harness the power of actual electoral data for the benefit of some common good in the public interest. I think this can be done. I'm optimistic that we will make progress in the next 10 or 20 years on this in the United States. And perhaps then uh, Democrats and Republicans will at least begin to, as the Colorado State Senate President put it, play nicey-nicey. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I would like to thank the speakers. We have some time for questions, but I, I, I urge you to be brief uh, and ask real questions, not uh, uh, you know, make long statements as sometimes people tend to do. Yes. You say, I, I'll take a few questions and then uh, okay. bunch them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, could, you, could you please say who you are and... and Sure. I'm Paul Ingram. I'm co-executive director of the British American Security Information Council, so it's quite appropriate to this talk. Um, I, I am hesitant at bringing in another example to support my case because we've already had lots of examples, but the European Parliament votes – I bring this up for two reasons. The European Parliament votes um, – people vote for the European Parliament and the apportionment to different countries is not proportional to the population. I wondered if, if uh, Professor McLean in particular could outline what that system is and why that, that could be seen as democratic under the, uh, the criteria you're talking about. And if we look at how Britain in particular has divided its members uh, for the European Parliament, we have a case at the moment where there is an additional member being allocated it, and it could go to London or it could go to Scotland, I believe. Now, uh, again, I believe there isn't a proportional uh, system here, or, or not strictly. And, um, and then we come up to my second point, which is uh, the modern equivalent of the slaves that you were talking about. We have people who are not on the electoral roll, and we have people who are migrants. Who, don't, who, are, who may be on the electoral roll, they may be European electors, but they don't get a vote in the, Europe, in the general election. Uh, this too can strongly distort the number of uh, the, the relationship between the populations and the electors. Yes. Next question. I'd like to take three or four. Yeah, please. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Andrew Thomasworth. Um, two, two questions: one on American, one on uh, British. Uh, on the British side, uh, do we, is there evidence of packing and cracking in the UK, or is that uh, more a US phenomenon? And on the American side, uh, do you? What's the answer to uh, to dealing with the, the gerrymandering? Is it just to wait for one of the Supreme Court judges to die and, and just uh, expect a, a change there, or do you have a legislation ready for implementation if, uh, if something happens, you know, in the style of the post-9-11 um, when they um, brought out uh, that legislation. Next question, please. Ken Ritchie from the Electoral Reform Society. Um, my, my question, I think, is more toward to Sam Hirsch, but Ian McLean might want to comment as well. Um, 
Samhurst, you, you, you concluded by suggesting that you thought that, yes, there were ways of solving the gerrymander problem. Um, but, you know, there's a sense in which even a gerrymander might result in a situation in which there are more people who have got, uh, you know, who have got a representative of their preferred party, uh, just as, you know, gerrymanders take place, uh, you know, in the states to make sure that there are, that there are people from minority communities that, you know, that secure representation. I mean, it strikes me, it, it, it is a complete muddle of arguments that are applied to how you actually draw the boundaries. Is it not that the problem is actually in the boundaries and the use of single-member districts themselves? That until you actually move beyond that, do you move into an area where you can actually have, uh, you know, politics that is going to be competitive, where, where, where there is going to be a real scope for debate, uh, for change that will take place between one election and another, you know, you're in different areas? And I just don't see how you can actually do it, um, you know, with this mix. I mean, sure, I accept that it is, you know, it, it, it has been so badly used by the parties in recent years that it is in total dispute. But are there not places in the states where there is at least um, a debate around about experimentation that should be encouraged? Yes. Uh, Sam, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, brief response really to all. I just want to say briefly in response to the first questioner, in the United States what we're equalizing is not the number of registered voters, it's the total population, which includes uh, uh, non-citizens, includes illegal non-citizens, includes children, and includes people who could be registered but aren't. And the result of that is there are enormous disparities in the number of votes cast in some districts and in other districts, which is a problem. On the other hand, what uh, the Supreme Court has made very clear is they're trying to equalize the number of constituents per representative, not the number of, of voters. And it's a solving a different problem. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a controversial issue, but an important one. And it's, it's really a, a big difference. Uh, you get literally three or four times as many votes in the most heavily voted district in Texas, say, versus the least heavily voted. Um, on the second questioner, um, as far as legislation, I think the chance that you would actually get federal legislation to fix this problem is very slim. First of all, I don't think the Congress has power to fix this problem for state legislatures. I, I actually think it's uh, beyond their power constitutionally. They could fix the problem any way they want as to congressional districts in theory. In fact, I just don't see it as being terribly likely. I think the best hope is to try to get state constitutional amendments passed um, uh, piecemeal in a few states, particularly those where you can put something on the ballot for a public initiative and thereby change the state constitution. And what I would like to see put on the public ballot would be something roughly akin to New Jersey's system, where there are certain criteria you have to satisfy, obviously compliance with federal law is one, a certain degree of equal population is another. And then among maps that all satisfy those minimal criteria, uh, basically there's a competition to see who can minimize partisan bias, who can maximize competitiveness among districts. And uh, this is done by having a sort of tripart commission with Democrats, Republicans, and a neutral chair. Uh, I think it only works if the chair is very responsible or is bound by very specific rules about what it means to minimize partisan bias, to maximize competition, et cetera. I do think it's solvable. I don't expect Congress to do it to itself. Uh, frankly, in my lifetime. But I think if some states do it and have success with it, it may spread to other states. As for the last question, uh, uh, certainly what uh, a lot of what I'm discussing 
is trying to uh, uh, suffuse a fundamentally uh, non-proportionate system with a certain degree of proportionality. We, we've been able to do that to some extent for our larger racial and language minority groups. Uh, we've been able to do it in states like New Jersey to some extent for political parties. Um, I think it's correct to say that single-member districts uh, in inherently tend to overrepresent large groups, underrepresent smaller groups, and in general uh, uh, not be as responsive to small or medium-sized shifts in public opinion. However, they have some benefits as well. You end up having a local member of Congress, a local member of the state Senate and state House, who is your member, who you can visit and who knows your area well. Um, and uh, uh, you end up more likely with a two-party system that generates majority governments. Now, these are trade-offs. And I suppose a lot of what I'm talking about is really trying to get some of the benefit of a proportional representation system pasted on top of what is fundamentally a territory-based single-member districting system, which I think we are not too likely to change. However, there are some county and city governments and school boards that have gone to semi-proportional systems like limited voting and cumulative voting, sometimes in response to being held liable for Voting Rights Act uh, violations uh, throughout the United States. They're mostly in smaller places, uh, although we have some history. For example, the whole state of Illinois used to have a semi-proportional semi representation system for the Illinois House up until 1970, I believe, 1980. Um, so there's some history of this in the United States. There's some of it now. But basically, the dominant system is the territorial one, and I'm trying to get some of the advantages of a proportional system pasted on top of that. Ian. Thank you. I'll take the first and the third questions together because uh, Ken says uh, surely the problems are unavoidable with single-member districts, and Paul says even with the multi-member district European Parliament there are problems, and those um, perspectives are both correct. Um, an advantage, and of course the issues of local representation and so on are very well known. I won't go into them. The advantage of, for, for the purposes of tonight's agenda of moving to um, something like a large district European Parliament style system for say the House of Commons would certainly be that the issues of districting are diminished. They wouldn't however go away. Um, you would have to decide the boundaries of your multi-member seats and you also have to decide how to assign seats within those to the, part, to the parties which contest them. Now um, the European Parliament problem therefore breaks down into a between-state problem and two within-state problems. The between-state problem is that um, the size of state delegations in the Parliament, and more importantly in the Council of Ministers, is, as Paul rightly said, not proportionate to population. Um, in the Council of Ministers, uh, well, in fact in, in both cases, it's, it happens to be and whether this is purely chance or design, I don't know. I suspect purely chance, but the world's greatest experts on the following subject are in the room. Um, the ratio is approximately a square root ratio. And the mathematical reasons why that is a good uh, ratio were proved in 1946. Uh, the European <coughs> Union dates to the early 1950s. Had they read Penrose's seminal paper on the subject when they first wrote the Constitution of the U European Union, Almost certainly not. So the fact that the between-state proportions are roughly uh, as the square root of population, I think it's just a happy accident. 
I would say that for the European Parliament, it should be something more like proportionate to population. For the Council of Ministers, it should certainly be something like square root, but others in the room have strong opinions on that. The within-state problem for the within-member-state problem for the European uh, Parliament consists, as I just said, number one, of how do you assign boundaries of uh, seats, and having done that, of multi-member districts, having done that, how do you uh, assign the number that each district gets? Number two, how do you assign seats to parties within these uh, uh, these units? Now here the social choice political science community scored a small victory and I suspect that Paul the questioner actually knows that and he's, he's planted me a soft question so that I can boast uh, what happened for the within state problem was that the electoral commission which is charged with this produced four methods in a consultation paper uh, for um, assigning uh, seats to each of the UK's 12 European Parliament constituencies, which are its 12 standard regions. And I got together a bunch of um, uh, academic specialists in this, including the American uh, colleague who is the co-author of the standard work on apportionment in the US. And we sent a memo into the Electoral Commission saying, they're all rubbish. None of the four methods that you propose meets the statutory criteria that you have to meet and you should go for what real enthusiasts, and I recognize at least two or three in the room, uh, know as the saint Lagu system of apportionment of seats to uh, the 12 regions. And they've done that. And furthermore, to answer your specific question, they've confirmed that they're doing that again in the upcoming reapportionment where the total number of European Parliament seats uh, to each region um, is determined. So my answer on that point is they've done the right thing. Whether it goes to Scotland or London, I don't know, but it, it should be going according to good numbers. For the within district, they're not using the uh, saint Lagu apportionment rule. They're using the uh, Daunt apportionment rule, which favors large parties. What a surprise, since it was large parties who wrote the rule. And um, I had a little bit of parliamentary fun some years ago with uh, Jack Straw, who was then the minister responsible for introducing the system, a well-known opponent of proportional representation, and he had a riff in the House of Commons about ten famous Belgians, and uh, that Victor Dant was one of them, and said studies that have been done in the Home Office prove that the Dant system is the fairest, and I said innocently, well, actually, I didn't say this in what I wrote, but since I knew that mathematically that was, could not be true, I asked innocently for the Home Office studies, it was a little bit like the case of um, uh, um, people coming to um, prove some theorem which you know to be false. Uh, I knew that the studies must be wrong, and it was a question of working through them until I found the mistake, and which I did. And uh, although there's no substantive triumph at all, I did force Jack Straw to apologize to the House of Commons. However, they stuck with Dodd. Um and finally, the second question uh, addressed to me, is there evidence of packing and cracking in the UK? Not very much, because in equilibrium, the parties are equally good at it. And what they do is the Conservatives produce one set of bogus local ties, and the Labour Party produces another set of bogus local ties, and a great deal of public money is wasted at inquiries which go on for weeks and weeks. And in equilibrium, it's a standoff. Um, 
And in a way, contrary to something that uh, Sam implied, uh, we do have non-partisan um, uh, districters in the shape of what are called assistant commissioners who really don't know the area and who don't know which local ties claims are more bogus than which others. In equilibrium, that would be okay. It so happened that in the last two, let's say, not the current one, but the one before and the one before that, uh, the Labour Party was much better organised than the Conservatives, and so they net did more packing and cracking than the Conservatives. My impression of the one which is currently going on is that the main parties were roughly equally competent, and so uh, the packing and cracking cancelled out. So, some good news. Uh, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Yes. Hello, my name is Daniel. Um, my question is for Mr. Hirsch, and it's really simple, actually. I just wonder about the effect of felon disenfranchisement on redistricting in the U.S., uh, especially in, as concerns those areas of the U.S., those states which get more population based from prison movement. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, is, uh, is, is, is there another question? If not, I, I, yes, please go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Um, in, in almost all states in the United States, uh, felons and in some states ex-felons are not allowed to vote. And um, that has a huge political impact because it's a, thanks largely, I think, to uh, many years accumulation of, of drug laws and drug convictions uh, actually affects a very uh, sizable number of, of people. So that's one effect. Another effect is that when district populations are being uh, equalized, for the reason I gave earlier to the other gentleman's, uh, uh, in answer to the other gentleman's question, we're looking at total population rather than registered voters. So if you have a, a 10,000 uh, prisoner facility in a state legislative district, it can be uh, actually a very underpopulated district because none of them are voting, yet they count towards the population total. And to, you'll see this, for example, in upstate New York, uh, and then in downstate New York, meaning New York City, uh, is actually where most of those folks are from, and their districts have no prison population, and therefore they have a lot more voters than they otherwise would have, so they are underrepresented. And then some rural legislator upstate who has a prison in his district, uh, uh, his constituents are very overrepresented. Um, at the congressional level, whether or not this has a large effect or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly when you're talking about state legislative districts, which are smaller, it can have a pretty substantial effect, at least on some districts. And it, 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 the, the bigger problem, though, is, is, is uh, these rules that don't allow people who have completely served their time, are done with parole and done with probation, and, and are not allowed back into the polity and not allowed to vote uh, and participate as equal citizens. I think that's really unjust. And I, I think that there is a strong movement now which will ultimately succeed to get rid of those laws. Well, all good things must come to an end. This has been a very good thing. I've, I've enjoyed myself and learned a few things. Um, I would like... Uh, oh, uh, uh, we are hoping to have a, a podcast of these proceedings eventually, which will be available. I would like to thank you, the audience, for uh, uh, being here and for your participation, and of course our two speakers, uh, which have uh, really contributed to a very successful evening. Thank you very much.